0: Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large.
1: Hello everyone, this is Maria Shabla and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today we are starting a two-part podcast on the history of the EOD Memorial and the upcoming expansion with the addition of the Remembrance Garden. For the first part of this podcast, we have the honor of speaking with United States Marine Corps' retired Major John Haynes. John was the driving force behind the construction of the original EOD Memorial at Indian Head and served as the first chairman of the EOD Memorial Committee. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much, and it's an honor to be with you.
1: You are so welcome. John, you started your military career at a very young age and went on to serve in World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Throughout your career, you were awarded the Silver Star Medal, the Purple Heart, the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Gold Star and Combat V, the Combat Action Ribbon, the Cross of Gallantry, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the China Service Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, and a number of other personal and unit awards and now at 92 you were just awarded the medal of honor from the daughters of the american revolution and had a day named after you for your service for our veterans with so many accomplishments please tell us your secret what keeps you motivated
0: well i think uh my my secret of uh, of old age is uh always enjoying what you are doing and uh my 30-year career in the Marine Corps and uh, about 15 or 16 of those years uh, uh, as an EOD uh, uh, person uh, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing uh, at at all times and uh, I looked at it as an honor and a privilege to be able to serve my country uh, a country that has given so much to me and I uh, was born during the Great Depression. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, I knew about hard times. And uh, so I appreciated the military, uh, all that they did for me. Uh, they gave me an opportunity to uh, uh, excel uh, in, in every uh, way possible, uh, and uh, I, I just feel very honored uh, to have had the opportunity to serve my country. And and that mission was not completed the day I retired, uh, uh, meaning that the commandant of the Marine Corps did not tell me, John, you're finished now. Uh, go home and take off your pack and sit back and drink a cold can of beer and enjoy yourself. Uh I think that the Commandant uh, expected me uh, to go out now into civilian life and uh, assist my community, my fellow man in every way possible. And I have elected uh, in my retirement to concentrate on providing aid and assistance to my fellow veterans. Uh, uh, I have been a uh, veteran service officer for 25 years and and more. And uh, in doing that, I have uh, hopefully been able to build a better life for my fellow veterans and and their families. uh, Because I have been able to assist uh, thousands and thousands of veterans obtain the benefits from the Veterans Administration that they so rightly deserve as a result of their service to our great country. I'm fortunate at the age of ninety two that I still uh have I think most of my faculties uh and I'm able to get around uh and and, and operate just as I always have. Um, so uh you know, I'm I'm fortunate and I think I've been rewarded uh by the good Lord uh in keeping me fit and and whole. So that I can continue to provide my services to my fellow veteran.
1: Now, John, and I think that it, um yes, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, now you were just telling me yesterday that you were actually able to go out and help some veterans. Um, can you tell us about that?
0: Well, uh, for the past week, I've been working with a with a well, no, two weeks. I've been working with a an 86 year old veteran that uh, it came to my attention as a person who was a member of, of a church that this veteran uh, that was having problems belonged to and this veteran called me on the phone and told me that uh, he had heard that there was a veteran uh, that might need assistance mm-hmm. because he, the story i got was that he was unable to feed himself uh, I investigated, uh, and this veteran did live in a very remote area by himself. He's unable to walk. He was a very severe diabetic. He uh, has severe dementia. uh, And it was a a horrible, horrible sight. Uh, As a result of my investigation, uh, uh, I determined that this veteran needed more help than what I could provide uh, on the scene, mm-hmm. and that he needed medical attention. Uh, I was able to get him into a local hospital in Tallahassee, where he stayed for, I think, 10 days. He just recently went out of the medical part into a physical therapy part of the hospital, and they're now trying to uh, work with him to get him so that he can walk. And uh, after he uh, is able to walk, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get him into a veteran's uh, facility, uh, an assisted living facility, as you would. That's our purpose right now is to try to get him into a veteran's facility so that he can be cared for. He's eighty six years of age, he had twenty six years of military service, which was honorable. And uh so these are the things that, that I occupy my time with. Uh I'm a uh or I have been a veteran service officer for twenty five years, and uh I've been able to assist thousands of veterans
1: that is wonderful uh, ob-
0: obtain their VA benefits. So this is what keeps me young serving my fellow veterans that
1: is that is wonderful and thank you so much for everything you're doing uh, for the community um now john you joined the military at a very young age can you tell our listeners how old you were and the story of how you enlisted in the military
0: okay i was uh, 15 years of age uh i was 15 uh uh february the 6th uh and uh, I had tried to join the Marine Corps at the age of 13. <laughs> oh my goodness. But uh, I think my age gave me away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the recruiter found out that I was only 13 and he told me to go home and, uh, and go back to school and, uh, and come back later. He didn't tell me how much later. <laughs> uh, but two years later, I really had the urge to, to get into the military, and uh, I knew that uh, I couldn't, couldn't do it, uh, probably legally. But the method that I selected and that I thought would uh, be the easiest, at that time, every uh, American male, upon their 18th birthday, they had to register for the draft. So I walked in uh, into a different town. I went to Jacksonville, Florida, which was quite a distance from my home where no one would know me. And I walked into the draft office and told them I was there to register. Well, they assumed that I was 18 and, uh, and filling out the papers, that became my 18th birthday according to the draft. And after I filled out all the paperwork, uh, they asked me if I would accept immediate induction because they were having difficulty filling their draft quota. I said that I would. Uh, and so they told me to come back the next day. And the next day when I came back, they gave me my 1A draft notice and with orders to report the following day uh for induction into the army i took those induction papers and went immediately to the marine recruiter and told them that i was getting drafted so they took those draft papers and joined me uh, up into the marine corps at that time and uh, the next morning at six o'clock uh, i was on a train uh, from jacksonville florida to paris island south carolina and uh that's how i did it and uh i'm sure that that could not be done now with the computers and everything that we have uh you know everybody knows everything about everyone right so so i don't think i could have done that now uh but uh i don't regret going in at the age of 15. i was uh able to do everything and in Marine Corps recruit training that uh, my fellow uh, Marines could do. And as a fact, uh, the day we graduated, I was designated as the most ready for combat in my 74 man platoon. Today, they call that being the honor man. But back in those days, they called it most ready for combat. I, I was fortunate uh, that they uh, didn't find out that I was only 15 uh, because I, I was doing what I wanted to do and I was serving my country and, and that's something that I really wanted to do. I was just a gung-ho 15-year-old hard-charging Marine uh, that really looked upon it as an honor to be able to serve my country
1: that is really just unbelievable um john i have you know two questions come to mind um number one um how did your parents um feel about you enlisting so young
0: uh, well my uh my father was in the south pacific at that time mm-hmm. he was in the uh, merchant marines my older brother was in the uh, south pacific at that time serving uh and uh my mother didn't realize that I was in the Marine Corps for about a month, <laughs> no. be- because she thought that I had gone to Jacksonville to visit my uncle. and when my uncle realized that I was no longer there, he thought that I had gone back home to to my uh, home and uh, but after, about a month, I wrote my mother and I told her that I was in the Marine Corps mm-hmm. and uh, that I didn't want her to do anything to to uh, cause me to you know be uh, put out of the Marine Corps because of underage. Right. And and that I would be home and uh, after boot camp on a ten day leave, uh, but that did not happen after. Boot camp. Uh, we were immediately sent overseas. They took five thousand of us out of boot camp and and uh, took us up to Norfolk, Virginia, off the train onto the ship, and uh, down through the Panama Canal Zone and out to the Pacific. But uh, when I uh, the first letter that I got after I had arrived overseas. There was a letter from my mother, and she was very upset that I didn't come home from boot camp, uh, and leave like I'd promised. Mm-hmm. And, and that she told me that she was going to, uh, write the Marine Corps and tell them that I was underage. Oh,
1: no. And
0: I, I wrote her a letter back, and I was hoping it would get there to her before she did anything. And fortunately, she hadn't done anything because I told her in my letter that I had joined the Marine Corps for four years and uh, that I raised my right hand. I took an oath and that uh, I was always taught by her to live up to my word. And I told her, I said, if you do anything to cause the Marine Corps to discharge me, I will never come home. so she wrote me back and said okay son if that's what you want uh i'm not going to do anything uh and two and a half years later i came home for the first time uh because i was overseas for two years over two years and and that's you know uh was the extent of that uh and i did not correct my age until i had uh had about I think nine years in the Marine Corps uh, I had just returned from Korea and uh, I was assigned a job at, at the Marine Corps Development Center that required a top-secret security clearance and I figured in the background investigation my true age would be discovered so I marched up to my commanding officer and told him that I wanted to correct my age in my record book. Mm. He was a little upset and he thought I was on a fraudulent enlistment. But I told him that according to the Marine Corps manual, age alone cannot be used for fraudulent enlistment. But anyway, it worked out fine. And I was able to serve my 30 years and, uh, and without any problems, and obviously it didn't hold me back. Uh, the my commanding officer, my uh, regimental commander, told me he said, "We just have a younger marine than we thought," <laughs> and and he said the same thing had happened to him when he was a young man.
1: Oh wow!
0: So so you know it was not a big deal with the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, after joining the Marine Corps in, in 1945 as an infantryman, your career took an unexpected turn after being wounded in action in Korea, for which you received the Purple Heart. Can you tell our listeners about the mission in Korea and what ultimately led you to the EOD career field?
0: Well, in, in, uh, in Korea, uh, that was a very, very bloody war. That was a brutal war. And in my mind, that was probably the toughest combat action that I've ever encountered. Uh, We were fighting mostly against the Chinese communists. And uh, they had uh, really, they had more artillery than what what we had. Uh, And they could outgun us uh, on any given day. But uh, I think we were better troops. In Korea, I was uh, in, involved in, uh, in in daily, almost daily, combat operations uh, against the Chinese Communist forces. And uh, uh, it was mostly operations at, at night because uh, it was very difficult to operate uh, during daylight hours. Uh, the Chinese had so many... Uh, uh, weapons, artillery pieces in particular, uh, that they could, uh, uh, you know, just pull us away. And so most of the combat operations was conducted at night. I, uh, did lead 112, uh, combat patrols, uh, in the enemy territory while in Korea. And, uh, upon return to the United States, I was assigned to the Marine Corps Development Center at at Quantico, Virginia. And in that, uh, my specific assignment was that I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the obstacle breaching section, which we were responsible for developing, developing tactics and techniques for breaching enemy minefields, clearing minefields, both ashore and in the shallow water approaching one of the main uh, systems that i uh, worked on during that period was the demolition line charge which was a very high explosive charge uh, and it was uh, 300 feet long it was pulled out of a uh, armored vehicle with a uh, five inch aircraft rocket and was designed to stretch out over a minefield to be detonated uh, at 1,800 pound of uh, high explosive and hopefully would blow a path through the minefield approximately 60 feet wide, 300 feet long. And uh, also, we were in the development of a an armored vehicle. Uh, the L V T E e one was uh, the vehicle we were using and it would carry two of these line charges uh, so th- that was most of my career there however while there uh, my officer in charge was a, a an eod qualified officer and since i was the actual one that was actually uh, exposed to most of the hazards uh, in this work uh, he asked me if I would uh, agree to go to EOD school. And uh, so I did agree, and then I went. that's when I went to Indian Head, Maryland. Upon completion of EOD school, I came back to Quantico and continued uh, my mission there. Uh, when my three-year tour of duty was up at Quantico, I was supposed to be assigned to the 3rd Marine Division on Okinawa. But three days prior to me leaving for Okinawa, I received a call from Headquarters Marine Corps uh, telling me that there had been an accident that morning at Camp Lejeune. Uh, they had had uh, three Marines killed and five severely injured at the demolition mine warfare school and that they wanted me to go down and there and and become the uh non commissioned officer in charge of the Demolition Mine Warfare School, uh which would be an EOD assignment. And I I did that. Uh but I was thinking that at the end of that that uh I would uh probably go back uh and, and be an infantryman again. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh in that assignment I was promoted from tech sergeant to master sergeant, and then from master sergeant to first sergeant when they came out with the E-8 and E-9 rank. So I became a, an infantry first sergeant. And then I was selected for uh, Marine gunner, a uh, warrant officer, uh, but uh, with the MOS of EOD. So I went from an infantry first sergeant to uh, a marine warrant officer w1 with a special designation as, as a marine gunner and i served in that capacity as, as an eod officer uh for several years until the vietnam war started when the vietnam war started uh uh well i skipped a, a little bit here when when i uh When I became a warrant officer, I went back to Indian Head and went through refresher training, and then I went to Okinawa, where I was uh, an infantry, excuse me, an EOD uh, platoon commander there, and after that tour of duty, I came back to Marine Corps Base Quantico, Virginia, as the base EOD officer, and uh, I served in that capacity for uh, about 18 months, and then I was selected to go to Indian Head on the staff as the officer in charge of the nuclear weapons practical training uh, area. And I did that for 18 months, and then I was selected to go to the Naval Explosive Ordnance Disposal Facility, which is the research and development branch of EOD, as the Marine Corps representative. And I did that until the, and that's when the Vietnam War started. And uh, I became a second lieutenant and went to Vietnam. And uh, after Vietnam, I came back to uh, Indian Head as the Marine Corps commander of the Marine Corps EOD detachment at the EOD school and, uh, served in that capacity until, uh, 1970 when I was assigned back to, uh, Vietnam again. And, uh, then from Vietnam I came back to Indian Head as the Marine detachment commander once again at the EOD school. And, uh, at the end of that tour of duty, my 30 years was up, and I retired.
1: Wow, that that is a lot of time in combat, it sounds like, John. Um, and I have a question. It seems that your heart is definitely, it was in the infantry, um, but how did you feel about being selected to be in the EOD uh, career field? And, and how was that well, for you?
0: Well, it would probably take me a, long time to tell you all of that Mm -hmm. but my first encounter with with, uh, Marine EOD was in China Mm -hmm. uh, during the Chinese Civil War and uh, uh, I uh, when I went to Korea uh, uh, excuse me, to uh, China I was uh, in uh, uh, in the infantry but I was a uh, uh, obstacle breaching uh, uh, section uh, of the infantry. Uh, we carried uh, flamethrowers, uh, Bangalore torpedoes, uh, satchel charges, and we were designed to knock out enemy tanks, uh, uh, blow up uh, enemy bunkers, trench line, and that sort of thing. But when, when I got to China, uh, we had uh, a mission of we were assigned to uh, protect all the trains that were going from central China to North China to haul coal because coal was the only uh, thing that the Chinese uh, had for heat or for energy. And, uh, the Chinese communists were trying to blow up the railroad tracks and, uh, blow up the trains, the railroad bridges. So the Marines were trying to keep the railroads open. And, uh, so they needed, uh, while they requested EOD to go on a little cart in front of each train to, uh, uh, clear any uh, mines booby traps and, and that sort of thing but it appears that we only had five EOD men ass- assigned to the 1st Marine Division in China and they did not want to deploy them so my group I was sent up over to EOD to get a five day short course on the uh, uh, disarming uh, booby traps, mines, and that sort of thing, so that we could, uh, clear the railroads in front of the trains. And so that was my first, uh, exposure to, uh, EOD. Uh, and, and after five days of training by EOD, I certainly was not an EOD trained technician. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had just enough training to be able to disarm the mines and booby traps uh, safely. And obviously, I did it safely because I'm still here. Right. But, but uh, I, I, I knew just enough about EOD to know that it was a, a very dangerous, a very hazardous job. And that they were uh, a very special, small group. in in the Marine Corps Uh, and in Korea uh, I ran into EOD again but EOD again was assigned to division headquarters and we could never get EOD when we needed them and and so I you know I formed I guess sort of a a jaded opinion I thought well you know uh, if EOD is so special, you know, why can't we get them when we need them?
1: Right. And,
0: and, uh, but, uh, I made it a point when I got into EOD, uh, that I wanted to be accessible, uh, to the combat forces. Uh, I wanted to be ready and, uh, and, and I was able to, uh, have enough influence, uh, with our EOD program. In the Marine Corps, uh, particular uh, when I went to Korea, uh, I was able to arrange to get uh, EOD assigned to all combat operations. Uh, if a, a Marine unit was going out, you know, we assigned EOD troops right to that combat unit, and uh, and that worked really, really well. And I i have a feeling that uh that our eod folks are task organized now and they probably uh are supporting uh our combat operations but uh after i really got into eod uh i i realized that i could accomplish an awful lot because i used to have a a statement with our marines i would say listen we can get civilians and train them in eod but we're marines we're marines first and we're eod second but we've got to be a marine first and i was able to get that attitude across and uh toward the end of my career in the eod program there was there was like two groups in eo marine eod mm-hmm. there was the one the group they called the Haynes trains <laughs> and then the, the ones that were not Haynes trained. Wow! But I not, I noticed that the majority of the uh, promotions went to the Haynes trained, and uh, most of the uh, critical assignments went to the Haynes trained. And uh, but I don't mean to to make it sound like that we had two types of EOD in the Marine Corps. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that our attitude was we were there to support the combat forces. and And, and that's what we did. Uh, we did that in uh, in Vietnam, and and I think it's been done in every war since. Uh, but I, I was I was very, very proud of of uh, EOD, my service in EOD. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I think it's one of the best things that ever happened to me, was when I did get into uh, the EOD program. I was able to accomplish much more uh, as an EOD uh, officer and an EOD technician than than perhaps I would have in in the infantry. However, uh, as you noted, that I was. Uh, decorated with a Silver Star in Vietnam Uh, and that was what started out as an EOD mission with an infantry unit uh, and the commanding officer of that unit became a casualty and uh, I wound up as the uh, commander of the of that marine unit and and that's when I received the Silver Star not actually doing an EOD mission I was doing an infantry mission but uh, uh, so my training in the infantry came in uh, in really uh, handy uh, when I had the occasion to to do what I did uh, when I was awarded the Silver Star but uh, I didn't get the Silver Star for EOD work I, I got it or just being a Marines uh, and and doing the things that Marines do in combat.
1: Well, well, that is is very interesting. They they definitely seem to complement um, each other um, in your career. So, um, so John, throughout your career, you you mentioned you had several assignments at the EOD school in Indian Head, Maryland. Um, First, you were an instructor and officer in charge of the nuclear weapons section, and then later as the commander of the Marine Detachment. Um, Then in December of 1968, a decision was made to build an EOD memorial wall. Can you tell us about your time with the school and then how that decision was made?
0: Yes, I can. Uh, When I came back from uh, Vietnam uh, the first time in, uh, let's see, that was 67, uh, we were talking, and I say we, all of the people at Indian Head in the EOD school, the EOD community, there was a lot of talk about an EOD memorial because the EOD program and all services had suffered, uh, uh pretty tremendous casualties in, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so the talk uh, was was going, but the talk had been going for years and years and years in, in Marine EOD about a memorial at Indian Head. And uh, when I came back to Indian Head from Vietnam, uh, I uh, was living aboard the base at Indian Head, and, and on each Friday night, I would invite the new refresher class my home and out in, the, in my backyard uh, I would grill steaks and, uh, and we would have a, a party for the incoming refresher class to EOD school mm-hmm. and uh, and almost 100% of these veterans and many of them had just returned from Vietnam themselves and, and they were asking me When are, when are we going to get our memorial? When are we going to get our memorial? And so one, uh, night this conversation was going on and there was a major tacket from the army that was there. And, uh, I promised him and the other refresher students that night that the the following Monday I would go to each of the commanders for each of the other military services at the EOD school and I would bring this subject up of a, an EOD memorial and uh, so I did that the following Monday morning I went into the CEO of the school who was commander Moody mm-hmm. And and then I got uh, the Army and the Air Force commanders. We all got together and I told them, I said, we've been discussing this for years about an EOD Memorial, but nothing ever happens. All we get is talk. And I think it's time that we did something. You know, we're engaged in a war. We are having a lot of casualties. And I think, in honor to those EOD personnel who are giving their lives for for our country, that that we need to honor them in the form of a memorial. And everyone said, "Yep, we agree." Who's going Who's going to make it happen? And I said, "Okay, I'll make it happen. I'll be." I'll be the chairman of the committee to uh, design, raise the money and construct the memorial. And the other three looked at me and sort of grinned and they said, you got it, <laughs> make, it make it happen. And so I went to work, uh, making it happen, getting out advertisements to all the EOD community throughout the United States and overseas uh, locations. And uh, we started raising money. Uh, I went through the public works department uh, at the base at Indian Head and had the drawings uh, made for this memorial. Uh, We had a, uh, a contest to recommend what the memorial would look like and the best drawing that we had uh, received was from a marine warrant officer Bill Penn he was an instructor at the school he was somewhat of an artist and a good technical illustrator and he drew up uh, the uh, what he pictured that the EOD memorial should look like. And our committee got together and we chose that drawing from Warrant Officer Penn as the best one. And it was at that time, the four columns, uh, brick columns with a large brass plaque on each one where the names would be placed of, you know, from each service uh, with a large service seal uh, on each one of those four columns. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, we did the advertisement uh, uh, for someone to build it, but then we decided on use instead of using a civilian contractor, we elected to go with our training aids branch at the EOD school. And at that time, there was a chief petty officer, uh, Harry Fromfelder He was in charge of the, uh, training aids branch. And then there was a CB, second class, uh, CB in, in the group, uh, uh, geez, I forget his name offhand, but I've got it written down in my records here. Mm-hmm. I can come up with it. But uh, they were the two uh, hands-on, uh, because they were both builders, and, and they knew uh, bricklaying and stuff like that. But the labor that we used was all students that were in a hole, padding at school, maybe they were waiting on a security clearance or they were waiting on a class to uh, form or they were waiting to get shipped out. Uh, so it was all student labor that we used. Uh, the only outside contract that we had was for the beautification of the landscaping. Uh, we had a... Uh, A contractor from outside come in and actually plant the plants and and the small trees and and that sort of stuff to to decorate the uh, the area and uh, I still have a copy of some of our records from that uh, era as far as the cost of of that and I have a, a lot of pictures of the uh, actual construction of the memorial. And I can tell you that there was an awful, awful lot of excitement around Indian Head in the EOD community when this was going on. Uh, we didn't have any trouble getting workers to perform, you know, the digging and, and the manual labor that was required to put this together. And uh, we uh, got the, the bronze plaques. Uh, we contracted uh, an organization, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for those, <coughs> excuse me, and for the bronze service seals that we put on each one of the four columns, and the EOD crab that we put out in front of the memorial on a pedestal. Uh, but, uh, of course, we capped all of, of this off. We had a, a formal uh, service with the heads of, of uh, the EOD service programs there. Uh, we had a lot of dignitaries from Washington there that day. Uh, and it was just a, a great day. Uh, uh, of uh, enjoyment in the little town of Indian Head uh, we all had we had a great celebration that night and then shortly thereafter we created the first EOD Memorial Ball and I can remember uh, that was back in a different era mm-hmm. the, the cost of EOD tickets to go to the ball and the ball included free uh free beer keg beer and a free meal all for $5 a person wow and uh, we were all dressed in our formal uniforms uh, and it was just a historic uh, we gave out the first college scholarship that night and I can remember as if that day was today the first scholarship was awarded to a young lady. Uh, her last name was Brown. Her father was an EOD lieutenant who had been killed uh, in the performance of an EOD mission. Uh, and uh, it was just a great, great, great uh, day. And we had messages come in from all over the world, from the U from our EOD units that were. Located all over the world, overseas and throughout the United States. We had telegrams and messages coming in uh, on that day. I mean, it was just, you can't believe the enjoyment. Uh, but uh, we realized uh, in, in short order after we started this program of building a, an EOD memorial. Yes, we EOD could build a memorial. Uh, in fact, we were of, of the attitude and of the opinion that EOD could do anything. Uh, uh, we even, uh, I think, thought and maybe even advertised that we could walk on water.
1: Uh, <laughs> Oh my goodness! Uh, and that and that was June twelfth, nineteen seventy. I just wanted to point that out to the listeners. And right, absolutely, right. a monumental day for the EOD community, um, and such a significant contribution to honor those killed in action and in their duties as an EOD tech. So the school um, moved to to Niceville in nineteen ninety nine, and with it, the memorial wall um, that must have been. Upsetting news to some Indian head. Was that a difficult move? And then how were you involved with that?
0: Well, I, I was not involved. Uh, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, I didn't even realize it had happened oh, no. until, it, until it had happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, at, at, at first, I think it was a little uh, disconcerting uh, and sadness mm-hmm. to see our memorial dismantled but then I think after we thought about it for a while then we realized that that was the best course of action because you know all of the EOD troops well I'd say most of the EOD troops the EOD school moved away Mm -hmm. from Indian Head but we did leave the uh, EOD Technical Center at Indian Head and, uh, and I think it's still there. Uh, but uh, the main part of EOD is the EOD school. Uh, that's where we're all trained. That's where we all come back to for a refresher. And, and that is sort of our home base. Uh, we consider, now we consider uh, Eglin Air Force Base, you know, the EOD school there is our home base. Uh, we go back there for a refresher and for other occasions. Uh, we go back there for the EOD Memorial and, uh, the EOD Memorial Ball. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is, is home now. And, and while at first there was a little sadness, I think, uh, among, uh, a lot of us old timers, uh, I think we've, uh, Matured enough to understand that that was probably the, the correct course of action to move the, uh, the memorial, uh, because it, it, it is now located at our home base, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where we receive our training, where we come back, uh, uh, for our refresher training, where we come back to celebrate EOD, and to celebrate and honor all of our fallen EOD comrades uh once a year we do that and so i think it was a, an appropriate move and, and i respect that and uh and i uh, i honor uh the EOD memorial and i did have the opportunity to go back to uh the EOD school when when we did the refurbishment of the uh monument there when we started running out of room uh i was at that time serving back on the eod memorial committee and i volunteered to be in charge of the program to design and uh and and fix the eod memorial so it could contain uh many many more names and, and I did that, uh, uh, and and I was very honored to do so. Uh, and uh, we did that uh, for a lot less money than what it had been estimated. Uh, we had bids up to nine hundred thousand dollars it was going to cost. Oh
1: wow! And
0: I think I think we spent like twenty eight thousand dollars to to put the new plates on which greatly increased the number of names. Uh, and I hope and pray to God that, 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 that those uh, new plaques that we put on, on those uh, epitaphs there at the school, I hope they remain bare. I hope we don't add many more names. Uh, in fact, it's my prayer that we don't add any more names, uh, but I know that's impossible there will be casualties uh among us uh so now in 2013
1: the EOD Memorial Foundation merged with the Wounded EOD Warrior Foundation um and and now in 2022 we're almost finished the construction of an expansion to that memorial called the Remembrance Garden um it's to serve as a place for family and loved ones to come and honor and remember all EOD techs, not just those killed in action or doing EOD duties. What are your thoughts on the Remembrance Garden, John?
0: Well, uh, after giving due thought to it, you know, after I, I learned of this, uh, I'm, I'm in favor of that uh, because I, I, I think that we and the EOD community should do any and everything humanly possible to provide the comfort, the aid, and assistance to our survivors uh, of the EOD community, and and not only to the to the survivors of those uh, men and women who have given their lives in EOD, but who have served in EOD as well. Uh, we know that EOD is a, a demanding, demanding, uh, uh, and, uh, dangerous, but critical mm-hmm. occupation, uh, in our armed forces. It's, it's absolutely a necessary that we have these trained warriors to perform this, uh, very, very important mission. So I think. That in the aftermath, if there's anything that we the EOD community can do to provide uh, uh, comfort uh, uh, to honor those uh, families or or EOD warriors, you know that uh, are no longer uh, maybe active in the EOD program or. In certain cases, they're probably, uh, uh, the families of EOD warriors, uh, that are on active duty that, that, that need that same, uh, comfort, uh, and, and assistance, uh, that the foundation can provide. So, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, I think it's a great thing. And uh, and I respect and, and honor and pay my tribute to those responsible for making this, uh, this happen.
1: Thank you so much, John. Um, and we appreciate everything that you you did for the EOD community and, and building this memorial wall um, to honor those killed in action. Um, I definitely think that we're gonna have to have you back um back on the podcast um at, a, at another date so you can tell our listeners about what you did after your uh, retirement and what you're still doing to help veterans um in the military community um but john it was so wonderful talking to you today and i just want to ask do you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners about the eod memorial wall
0: no uh, I, I i don't uh, i would just encourage uh as many of our EOD, uh, uh, warriors to, uh, try to get back to Eglin Air Force Base, especially for the, uh, date when we honor our, our fallen and our EOD warriors at, uh, at Eglin Air Force Base at the EOD school. Uh, I think, uh, this is something that we want to live in memoriam, uh, you know, forever and ever. Uh, we expect this memorial to be there to uh, uh, to be a place of honor, uh, so that you know every family can can look at that uh, EOD memorial and and the new ex- extension that uh, is about to be dedicated. Uh, it can look at this as as something that has been done as an honor to honor you know those EOD men and women who uh, uh, stepped forward to take on this enormous responsibility of of the EOD program uh, as it exists, and uh, I, I just uh, probably don't know how to. Uh, Say it correctly, but uh, I think that we need to get as many of our people back there every year as possible, because this is an honored tradition uh, that we all should look forward to coming back and and just joining hands once a year back at Eglin. Uh, I myself haven't been able to make it for the past three three or four years, but. Uh, I'm going to do everything. I'm trying to work my schedule right now to see if I can be in attendance uh, at this coming uh, service that you're going to have on the 5th. I don't have it quite worked out yet that I can be there, but uh, I'm making every effort possible to rearrange my schedule so that I can be there because I think that the older guys like myself were rapidly leaving the face of the earth, but as long as humanly possible, I think uh, that we, the few who are, are remaining that, that were here when it started should uh, get back to edlin Air Force Base EOD school and uh, and offer our thanks to those who have gone before us and uh, just pay our respects
1: well I absolutely hope that you can make it John it would be an honor to have you there um, so thank you again for this wonderful um, conversation um, now keeping in tradition I'm going to end the interview by asking you some of your favorite things um, okay Okay. what is your favorite song
0: well I've, I've thought long and hard about about that but and and uh, I have several, but I guess going back to Frank Sinatra, I did it my way.
1: <laughs> you certainly did do it your way, John. <laughs> uh,
0: that's a wonderful. And song. I think I think that's is is quite appropriate uh, for me and my career. I, I think. uh uh, that song there, I did it my way.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. Um, what is when I
0: mentioned it to my daughter, uh-huh. she she's just her comment was, "You sure did, that. You sure <laughs> did it your way."
1: <laughs> okay. What is your favorite movie?
0: Well, uh, I hate to be prejudiced, but I, I'm going to have to go with uh, the Sands of Iwo Jima.
1: Okay. Um, what is your favorite
0: pastime? Well, my favorite pastime, believe it or not, is providing uh, uh, my aid and assistance to my fellow veteran. Uh, that's what I occupy my time doing. And, uh, and, and, you know, really, I don't have a pastime. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, my time, my waking hour, is almost totally consumed in in providing aid and assistance to my fellow veterans and and their families. I get more satisfaction out of that than uh, almost anything.
1: That is wonderful. Thank you. And then my last question for you is: What is uh, who was your favorite president and why?
0: Well, there was a couple, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with george washington uh and and my uh re- respect for george washington uh, you know going back in history in in that era uh knowing what president what george washington did as the leader of those 13 uh, american colonies who fought that war uh against a formidable enemy. Uh, you know, uh, when he crossed the Delaware and when he was fighting the British, uh, you know, he was a a leader of men. He set the example. Uh, he was a leader that had a devout uh, a commitment to this fledgling country of ours, and and I think had we lost that war, uh, uh, our country would never have been what it what it went on to become, and and I attribute that to George Washington and his great men that he led. Uh, these men that were fighting with with very few clothes, no shoes, bleeding, bleeding feet. Uh, they were outnumbered, outgunned, but they didn't have uh, uh, an enemy that had the same spirit and the same leadership that we had in George Washington. And, and I think uh, he is known as the father of our country. And, and I think George Washington was one of the few able-bodied leaders that we had available that could lead this country during that terrible time. Because we, we also should realize that in that war, that George Washington was committing an act of treason against the enemy, you know, uh, the British. Uh, he could have been hung. And he, he would have been hung had they been able to get him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just think the indomitable fighting spirit that George Washington had when he took that small body of men that he was leading and was able to overpower a a formidable nation and win that war. uh, I I just think, uh, and then to become our first president, uh, I've got to put him at number one.
1: (laughs) That's a great answer, John. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for for taking the time out of of your busy life to talk to us about the memorial wall and we are looking forward to hopefully having you in attendance um at the um unveiling of the remembrance garden
0: thank you so much i'm gonna stay i'm gonna hopefully stay in contact with you
1: yes please do and
0: keep keep you posted uh and if there's any way possible for me to be there i want to be there
1: Thank you. We will definitely stay in touch. And, and hopefully I can get you to agree to be on another podcast at a later date.
0: Well, uh, I'm always open for whatever I can contribute.
1: Thank you so much. Um,
0: I, I will always maintain that attitude uh, until the last last song is sung.
1: You are a great inspiration, John. Thank you so much and take care.
0: Thank you kindly. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at EODWarriorFoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.